like bumped into her and I was just like, oh, how are you feeling? And she's like, yeah, we're really excited. Because like she could see, you know, the ground, it, it looked and felt different. Like there was a main stage, like they could see the pyros going in, all the LED boards, the LED arches. She was like, yeah, we're really excited. This is going to be wicked. And I'm like, yeah, it needs to be a really good game, Georgia. Like we need it to be a good game. Like, you know, it can't be a, it can't be a dance quiz. Like we need a close finish and high run scoring and boundaries and, and everything. And she's like, yeah, you're like the fourth person from the ECB that's told me that today. So thanks for all the pressure. <laughs> I'm Matt Rogan, and this is the Playbook Podcast, where leaders from inside and outside sport share pragmatic advice for leading and managing through change. Today, we're looking at a subject not only close to my heart as a dad of an 11-year-old girl, uh, but finally, front and centre of our society as a whole. How do we catch up on decades of underinvestment to scale female sport at pace? I'm joined for this conversation by a lady who's been front and centre of the news agenda generally in the sports business over the last 12 months. Beth Barrett-Wilde, head of the 100 Women's Competition and Female Engagement at the England World's Cricket Board, the ECB. While our conversation is rooted in cricket, it's got pretty far-reaching implications for any leader looking to make their sport more representative of the society we all live in and do so at pace. So we look today at diversity in terms of gender, but there are also clear applications and learning points for widening access to other underrepresented groups too. And if that piques your interest, you'll also enjoy the Playbook pod with Vodafone's Claire Harvey you'll find online. For today, though, let me take you back to the warmth of the summer to understand how Beth and the team pulled off one of, if not the, sport business success story of the year, the Women's 100. Beth, hello there. Thank you for coming on. Hey, Matt. Yeah, thanks for having me. Really looking forward to this. We shall delve deep. Right. Um, so in terms of kicking off, I was looking at your background and wondering where we could start this conversation. And I figured one of the interesting things I thought I saw was she did your degree, did the sort of uni thing, and then spent an additional year at uni as president of, of sports across the whole of the university. And I just thought always reflecting on it, thinking maybe every leader in sport should do that to really start to properly understand the grassroots before we disappear into our ivory towers. Like, how was that? And did, did that, did you find that quite pivotal in the time, everything you've done since? Yeah, look, I was very fortunate, actually. So um, when I finished my degree, so I did a geography degree um, and classic geographer, I, I think I knew I wanted to work in sport, but I wasn't exactly sure what I wanted to do and there was an opportunity um, to be the sports federation president um, which was a, a graduate sabbatical role um, so I had to go through an election to get that gig um, but it was brilliant you know it was one of the best years of my life I think um, getting the opportunity to like you said there just to sort of get a foundation in understanding how sport is run um, at a grassroots level um, but also being sort of yeah having that input into the the wider sort of visibility of um, sports so it was at Oxford University so um, quite 
yeah, fortunate to have um, the opportunity to work there. Um, but yeah, it really gave me that grounding. But I think it was almost after that role, I did definitely have a bit of a wobble about, well, what do I want to do next? So all of my friends, they were off becoming investment bankers and consultants and doctors and sort of all the, the maybe um, more traditional routes uh, into the sort of the career space. Um, but I knew I wanted to work in sport, but wasn't quite sure which bit. Um, and I actually got an opportunity to work for Rounders England. So they were the national governing body um, for Rounders. Um, obviously, they just had a big cash injection from Sport England. It was ahead of the 2012 Olympics um, to increase the, um, increase the participation of women, actually, in particular in sport. And um, so I got to be a regional development manager uh, for Rounders England in East Anglia, which um, certainly maybe wasn't the, the next step that my parents necessarily thought I was going to take. But um, that it was brilliant. You know, I, I learned so much so quickly. And I think especially about that grassroots um, element and sort of developing sport on the grounds and really getting that understanding of um, sort of the environment and, and just how the, the whole network fits together. And so, yeah, I look back at those two years in particular um, quite fondly, um, albeit maybe not um, sort of the natural sort of first step that I thought I'd take into the sports industry. We'll do the podcast on how to win a sports election with Beth Parrott Wild another day. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess when you when you did join cricket, um, first the MCC and then into the MCC, you, you've had a really interesting blend of media and strategy and female focus roles and is that have you found that a useful grounding in terms of moving into a to a female focus role with the hundred but to have, have also been the strategy and media side as well yeah i think so i think so um yeah from sort of rounds england i got an opportunity to go and work for mcc so marlebone cricket club and um, the owners of um, lords cricket grounds and the guardians of the laws of the game and um, so i think it's probably the most famous cricket club in the world um, and i worked in the media and comms team there so um, I learned a lot about, um, yeah, how to promote and present cricket, how to talk about it. Um, I also learned um, a lot about sort of the the, the network of cricket. And um, I was, you know, I was a, a minority at the time. Yeah, I was a, a woman working in a very, very, very um, male-dominated environment. But I think that gave me a really good grounding, I think, in particular around sort of stakeholder management and sort of understanding what my voice was and values and principles and things. So, um, that was that was yeah a good um, stepping stone I suppose and um, before moving across the ECB where um, I've had lots of opportunities and I've been really fortunate actually um, with regards to kind of yeah my background through the organisation so I first joined the ECB in 2014 as the media manager for the England women's team um, which was brilliant and I did that for three years um, absolutely loved it I think when I was little I had aspirations of playing for England and playing in World Cup finals and scoring those winning runs at Lords and Unfortunately, that didn't quite pan out for me, but to have that opportunity to work with the team and to be responsible for promoting them um, at a stage of real kind of growth around women's sport and women's cricket in particular, um, that was brilliant. And, and I learned a lot. Um, I met a lot of the right people, actually. I'd say that was probably a really um, something that stood me in good stead now in terms of sort of the, the media contacts that I made at the time and sort of having that and that network of, of sort of people that I could um, talk to about about things. Um, and then, yeah, through the um, through the organisation, so I worked on the Women's World Cup in 2017, so got that global events experience, which was amazing. Um, and then I had a little bit of time in the strategy team at ECB as well, which really gave me a very, very solid understanding around the business of cricket um, and actually sort of, you know, under the bonnet, not just about how you present it, but how you how you run it, how it all fits together, um, who the key players are, um, sort of how the money works, how that side of things works. And I think 
those that combination actually of that strategic element alongside my sort of obvious passion and um, drive and desire to grow women's cricket in particular um, I think those two things um, came together really well so yeah I think it's sort of that that meeting of the strategic element and um, that profile building bit to where I am today um, working on the 100 and the women's competition in particular um, it's given me a, a really really good grounding. And I guess we we talked a bit on this podcast previously about you know talent that's that's rising to the top across sports and is is able to blend that left and right brain piece. You know, sport without passion is nothing. Sport without empathy for those that play and those that that care about the sport is is nothing. And yet at the same time, it has to be grounded in in good business logic because in cricket, like like all sports, you know, money doesn't contrary to popular belief money doesn't actually grow on trees um, <laughs> yeah. I, and I guess I um subject of female cricket I read I was given a book recently fantastic book by a guy called Pete Davis called Mad Dogs and English Women um which charted if you haven't read it anyone listening it's, it's fabulous it charts the uh an England women's cricket tour um from the end of the last century believe it or not um which was, to, to paraphrase, um, very committed, but very, very backward. Yeah. Uh, in terms of the support and care and attention that was given. And frankly, um, don't normally shout out on the podcast, but without Vodafone support, it would probably have fallen apart by the sounds of it. Uh, and to be in a position now, um, not many years later, it's just a seismic change in the, in the female game. And I notice it even with my... 11-year-old daughter, the opportunities she was getting and, and the way people were talking about her involvement in the sport age 8 to 11, it's just massive in, th- in three years. So if you look back on on your involvement in, in female cricket over the last five years, maybe from, from the Women's World Cup and the preparation that went into that um, through to the 100 this year, if you look back, you know what what were the step change moments along the way? So what were the clues that you saw that, that told you, maybe not the formal clues, but said, we're on something here. I can tell that, that things are moving. Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I think actually what you're saying there is sort of just smiling and nodding, which obviously the listeners won't be able to, to see. But I think that... That's quite a rare thing when I run a podcast. This <laughs> <laughs> I think that that kind of, um, you know, that professionalisation off the field is something that's happened recently. So I think what we've seen over the last, um, sort of definitely the last seven years since I've been at the ECB is that, um, there have been several step change moments. So I think uh, 2014 um, and the awarding of the first wave of professional contracts for the England women's team. And um, so I actually remember writing the press release for that announcement at the time. And that was the first wave of 18 women being able to earn a career in cricket. And that's not actually that long ago, if you think about it. I think it's one of those things now that people just kind of think it's been around for years and years and years and it it hasn't really it's you know it was only seven years ago that that happened and I think if you look at what's happened over those seven years it's almost like everything's just sharpened up a bit um so yeah the the first wave of professional contracts I think the women's world cup final in 2017 um so yeah I was fortunate enough to be able to work on that event um and the memory from that day and seeing 27 and a half thousand people in the ground um, watching women's cricket and just not even actually what was going on in the ground, what was going on outside the ground before the start of play. So there were queues all the way back to St. Johnswood tube station. Like that's just never been seen before um, in women's cricket, certainly in this country up to that point. Um, you know, there were ticket touts outside the gates, um, which on one hand is, is not great because it's very illegal, but um, it was a sign, I think, that actually 
the game is shifting and the, the market is there. And I think that was probably the moment that um, there was this realization that, you know, women's cricket, it's not just a nice thing to do and it's not just the right thing to do. And it's not just a tick in, tick in the box. Oh, we have a women's team. There was almost a realization at that point, actually, that hmm, there's something in this commercially as well. And I think that was kind of the moment where people maybe sat up and took notice about, oh, yeah, this is something that people want to come and watch. Um, and look, I think from there, you know, we've had the the um, ICT Women's T20 World Cup at the MCG um, back in 2020. I think that was the last major global sporting event, actually, before the pandemic hit. Um, and we had over 86,000 people watching that. So, again, just another mass demonstration that people will watch women's sport if you present it and put it on that big stage and you create those moments. So I think there's been those kind of big global um, events, uh, visibility points I think there's also been the professionalisation of the England women's team. But I think actually something else that's happened in the last 18 months is our new women's regional domestic structure. So we now have eight um, professional regional teams um, in this country. Um, and I think there's something like 41 professional regional contracts for women within that as well. So I think it's almost that those points of realisation around those big global events and the, the crowds and identifying that there is a market for it. And then investing in the right places around professionalizing the standard of play on the field. And I think actually all of those things have led into where we got to this summer with the hundreds um, and almost a realization of, of some of those things um, at a domestic level for the first time. So um, I think it's it's almost it's, it's been a, a kind of a long journey, but quite a rapid journey at the same time um, for the women's game. A couple of things you said there, I'll maybe pick up on. The first one, I guess, if I think back to the World Cup win, um, one of the other things that um, actually I didn't go to the final, but went to some of the earlier games, one of the things that struck me was was how different the crowd looked. Um, and, and, you know, there were a lot more families. There were a lot more people from actually ethnic minority groups and things as well. And, and I guess I it the last, the most recent time I've seen a crowd of cricket that looked like that actually was, was at one of the Southern Brave games um this, this summer and so probably it wasn't just the volume of people that you saw coming to the game but also the, the different demographics I guess would play a part as well absolutely and I think that's yeah it's a really key factor I think um intuitively we've always known that women's sport and women's cricket perhaps attracts a, a sort of a more female family orientated audience but I think what we've been able to do actually over the last few years and this is another step change actually in sort of women's cricket is really understanding that audience and actually starting to collect data properly. I think it's a massive um, thing that historically, um, you know, I think sports catching up actually around the, the data play and everything. But I think women's sport in particular still has a lot to do in that space. But I think in terms of that demographic, so we know for the Women's World Cup final, I think it was something like 45 percent of ticket purchases were female and 30 percent of tickets um, were junior tickets. And like that's actually the exact demographic that we're now looking to go after through the hundred. So I think in terms of what um, what women's sport and what women's cricket in particular can bring to the game is it it does have naturally a more accessible feel to it. And I think actually moving forwards from this point, it's something that um, we almost need to be quite careful to protect. I think as the as women's cricket does professionalise and more money does come into it. Um, making sure that we sort of maintain that authenticity um, around that is is really key. And I think, you know, you see the players, like they're brilliant. Like at the end of every every sort of, um, whether it be a 100 match or um, an England women's match, like um, the women's players, uh, they will stay for hours afterwards signing autographs and connecting with those fans. And I think 
um, that's really significant. And I know there's been lots of research recently actually released um, around um, kind of the value of the female fan um, and how um, I think it was the space between that did it about sort of, yeah, that value proposition and how um, women's sports audiences can be slightly different to men's sports audiences. And that's a good thing because that means that you've got more opportunities, I guess, to then work with commercial partners. So um I've forgotten what your question was there, Matt, but yeah, definitely a slightly a, a different demographic um, of fan coming to those those women's matches. And I think that's um, a really exciting opportunity, actually, as a, as a sport that we're able to attract um, those different fan bases. For sure. And, and the other thing that you, you mentioned that I thought was really interesting, maybe actually relates to your job title as well, sort of looking after the 100, but also relating to female engagement more generally is it... And it's perhaps a lesson for those senior execs listening to this, thinking about how they can create the same scaling effect for, for female sport is you're not just looking at it as big marquee events, but it's all the pyramid um, that goes underneath that to support that it is, is absolutely fundamental. Otherwise, you're, you're building on on poor foundations. You know, my, my son's 14, plays a lot of cricket and plays with two or three very talented girls in this in the same side all of whom are regularly taking part in in talent id schemes going down spending time with, with with various professional setups and just that proximity for talented girls now to the to a professional game is, is a huge change and we're actually really powerful in a way that you, you know, actually maybe the boys game can't achieve just because of the volume and numbers that proximity and the intimacy is is really important yeah, I think it's massive. I think there's a few things there. I think in terms of that investment piece, um, yes, we've got, you know, this shiny new thing called the 100, which gives us enormous visibility and scale on a level that we've never had before. And that's brilliant um, in terms of our shop window and normalising cricket as a sport for men and women. But I think actually, yeah, the investment um, through the whole um, through the whole pyramid. So from that first moment when a young girl wants to pick up a bat and ball for the first time and having um, an equal opportunity to do that um, with her male peers. So like we've got All-Stars Cricket and Dynamo's Cricket. There are entry-level products, very much gender neutral in their sort of proposition. Um, but then all the way through that talent profile and that talent pathway piece. And I think, you know, from my time, so I fell in love with cricket when I was 10 years old. Um, and it's the classic story of being the only girl um, down at my local cricket club. Um, fortunate to play in a very accommodating environment um, with all the boys and everything, but that is changing. And I think actually that, you know, the the number of girls coming through now um, is, is increasing. Um, it's increasing at pace. We still have a lot of work to do. Um, but I think in terms of that proximity around, um, yeah, the top end of the game and, and sort of remaining those connections through the pathway is really important. And I think quite a lot's been written actually, hasn't it, about that connection between sort of elite athletes and the grassroots and whether there is actually a causal link between um, sort of, yeah, your, your high profile athletes and sort of, yeah, people picking up a bat for the first time. And I think what we've actually seen this summer is straight away through the hundreds, some of our numbers are demonstrating that there is a link there. So um, All-Stars cricket is from five to eight-year-olds, Dynamo's cricket is from eight to 11-year-olds. Um, and we saw sort of prior to the hundred starting, and we have between sort of 25 and 30% of signups would be girls, um, which, um, you know, we ultimately want to be at a 50-50 uh, gender ratio. So we've got a bit of work to do there. But then we had another program that ran actually during the 100. And we saw those numbers increase by 10% straight away. So I think that's just a really clear um, demonstrator, actually, that, yes, if you do create those visible moments where 
Um, women are being put on a big stage and they are being uh, playing on free-to-air television and supported by all of our broadcast partners and everything. Um, yeah, girls in particular can kind of look up and, and sort of see a future for themselves in the sport. Uh, and if I think back to those Dynamo sessions, the All-Star sessions at my club, um, the ECB have been very clever and sent down some packets of uh, cricket attacks. How good are they? The tops cards. You know, the, the, the tops cards for the 100. Um, and what happens, of course, is is the kids are delighted to get them, whether boys or girls, and they open the packets. And lo and behold, there are female cricket stars as well as male cricket stars in there. And so from those kids' first experience of the game, um, having professional women's cricket is normalised. Just it's not a conversation. Like my, my daughter, I mentioned, it's eleven. Like she, she's never known, really known the world any other way, and that's just massive in terms of the cultural shift. It's huge, yeah. And look, that's so exciting. And I think the Tops Cards partnership, actually. So with everything we're doing, especially with the hundred, like we we have this opportunity to work with different partners, and I think the Tops partnership in particular really does excite me because I think just as you said there, you know normalizing young kids opening their packet and having half women half men um, and actually then trading some of you know trading a ben stokes because they really need to get an alice capsi like that's really cool um and that's not happened before and i think that that normalization piece for me is the opportunity that we actually have through the hundred and like, i i talk about how the hundred almost gives us this unique second chance to make a first impression about what cricket is and who it's for and I think, you know, the whole purpose of the 100 is about throwing cricket stores open to more people, um, especially families and, and young people. And I think um, by sort of, yeah, widening that audience and, and sort of, yeah, presenting the game as a as a gender balanced as for men and women, boys and girls um, from the start through things like the top stuff as well. So away from the actual match days um, is, is just brilliant. And hopefully, therefore, we will have a generation um, of players coming through now who it is just completely normal that cricket is is an equal sport for both of them. Hello there. Just cutting into this playbook podcast to let you know about the Sports Pro OTT Summit. It's the industry-leading event for the sports streaming and digital broadcast sector and it's back from the 15th to the 18th of November. We've got two days coming up in person at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium here in London, including the annual Sports Pro OTT Awards. Then we have another two days of conversations and masterclasses on our digital platform. You'll find all the details of a premium speaker lineup at sportspro-ott.com. And in case you needed any more reason to join hundreds of influential delegates to network and share ideas, we've got an extra special offer for our podcast listeners. You can use the offer code POD30 to get 30% off the cost of your pass. 30%. Just head to the website at sportspro-ott.com, enter the code POD30, that's P-O-D-3-0, and you'll get 30% off your entry price. It couldn't be simpler, and frankly, it's a pretty good deal. The Sports Pro OTT Summit, it's happening from the 15th to the 18th of November, and we hope to see you there. Move conversation on a little bit then. So, for you as a um, leading the line on the on the women's competition at the hundred, you know there must have been 
a thousand conversations over two years as to the relative presentation of this competition and delivery of the competition from you know some of the ones that, that are well publicized in terms of i don't know things like prize money versus salary versus um which games go on first versus how big the trophies are i don't know whatever <laughs> whatever it might be versus um you know, trying to create a look and feel in a uniform that's identical and going to work for in a women's cut and a men's cut. You know, how do you how do you personally manage that? So, how do you decide? Uh, my wife would call that picking your balance in <laughs> uh, the way we describe it to our daughter. But but how, how did you decide to handle that? Did you do you kind of go right? Everything's got to be equal from day one. That's my position. I'm not budging. Or how do you handle it? Yeah, I think picking your battles is quite a good way of describing it, I suppose. Like, yeah, that knowing when to push um, and when to sort of, yeah, just sit in for the the longer play. I think, look, with the 100, we have had a couple of um, fortunate moments that have helped us get to where we got to this summer. So um, without being too flippant, um, the pandemic last year, which at the time caused the, the heartbreaking decision actually to cancel the 2020 edition of the 100 and then to, to launch in 2021, um, whilst that was, yeah, it was devastating at that point, it actually, on reflection, gave us a chance to take a step back and be like, right, are we absolutely doing the right things for the competition and the women's game here? And I think there was a lot written at the time, actually, about how that pandemic might have this halting of momentum around women's sport in particular and whether women's sport would ever be able to recover. And I think what we've seen, certainly through um, not just cricket, but other sports is, you know, it's bounced back stronger. And I think for me, it actually gave us a chance to catch up with momentum. So we just had, you know, this 86,000 people watching the Women's T20 World Cup at the MCG. If we had gone in to deliver our 2020 version of the 100, it would have looked a bit different how we we ended up delivering it this year. So the 2020 model was a bit disparate. We had a lot of the women's matches actually being played as standalone fixtures in different venues. Um, we had a few double headers, but not every match was a double header. We had separate finals days, etc. So it, it would have had the same look and feel. But in terms of the scale and especially in terms of the broadcast coverage, um, it, it would have been perhaps, uh, you know, in, in brutal honesty, the women's competition might have been a sub, um, a, an inferior product to where the men's was. But we had a chance at that moment to make some big decisions and we made the decision to integrate the two properly because I think we had this realisation that the 100 is all about that joint presentation and that joint platform for men and women. And I think bringing the two together and having that integrated model and then having the double headers and having all of the matches played in the same venues on the same day for the same teams in the same kit for the same prize money for the same size trophy. So we did have a, an internal chuckle about that. So Sanjay Patel, who's the MD um, of the hundred, he always sort of pulls my leg a little bit being like, Oh, but Beth, you know, the women's trophy, it'll be a little bit smaller, won't it? Because they're not as strong. <laughs> Because I don't know if you've seen the 100 trophies, they're yeah. enormous. They are like yeah. bling, like they're just enormous. Um, but no, that, that's a joke. That was never going to be the case. Um, just to be very clear, they were always going to be the same size. But um, yeah, we had an opportunity basically to make those decisions properly. And I think actually if the 100 had happened in 2020, I, I just in all honesty, I don't think we were quite ready to live our values properly. And I think having that extra 12 months enabled us to take a step back and to, to then strip it down and be like, right, what's really important to us? And that gender-balanced presentation of the men's and the women's competitions 
It's not just important for the development of women's cricket because it's undoubtedly done enormous things for women's cricket. You know, we had over a quarter of a million people watching um, this summer in stadium, which is just, yeah, mind blowing, really. But it was really important to the hundreds and what the hundreds stood for. So going back to your question about, you know, picking battles and stuff, I think probably in the early days. So I've been on the hundred project for three years, coming up to three years now. And I think maybe in sort of my, my first 12 months, I probably had a few more battles that I had to kind of dig my heels in and and try and sort of, yeah, really push and, and sort of about, well, we need this. We need to do this for the, for the women's competition. Whereas I think what's actually happened over time is culturally as a team, we've evolved and we've developed. And I think now it's actually, it's not me. It's not really me doing a lot of the pushing. Um, and I think a really good example of that actually is, you know, the, the 100 this summer, we opened with a standalone women's match at the Kia Oval. So in a big ground, giving it primacy of stage and opportunity. And that was a conscious decision because we wanted to put the women's competition front and centre of what we were doing because it, it was what we stood for. But that wasn't my idea, actually. That came from that came from Sanjay. Sanjay just floated it with me and he said, look, what do you think? Do you think... Do you know, do you think the, the women's teams will be will be up for it? Do you think they'll be able to step up? Because it was a risk. You know, that was a risk making that decision um, to open with a, a women's match in a new format, an unproven format with new rules and new teams and new brands and no proven following. Um, it was a big risk, um, but it was one that was definitely worth taking because I think it actually set the tone for the whole competition. I think it was such a magical night for many reasons. Um, but yeah, look, in answer to your question, I think that there is a case of balancing when to push um, and when just to step in um, and step back for the, the longer kind of the longer game. But I think fortunately for me, now I'm in a position where I'm actually pushing on a lot of open doors. And I think it's not just and this is a shift. It's not just because people see it as the right thing to do. They see it as it being essential to what we do. So um, that's that's been a big shift. And I guess you you mentioned Sanjay there, and I don't want to make this specific to to Sanjay, um, but if if you know the reality is that the more than fifty percent of the people who are going to listen to this podcast are men, um, and I guess I'm interested in um, how people you've worked for and worked with um, over the course of the last say six seven years since you've been in cricket. But what have the those who've really embraced female game got it and given opportunities and also been challenging and asked the right questions you know how have they behaved what do you need what do you think um female sport needs from male leaders i think there has to be a genuine commitment to it i don't think you can ever come from a start point of just yeah sort of doing it because oh we have to do this or else you know we'll look bad i think if you if, if anybody starts from a position of, oh, well, we need to have a women's element to this because we need to gender wash it. I think gender washing is the term, isn't it? Then you, you're starting on the wrong foot in there. I think it has to be a genuine um, commitment to what you're doing because ultimately it will cost money. So that's the other thing actually about, you know, when I get asked about the success and how the, the women's comp and the 100 was such a success this year, like it's no secret, like we invested heavily in, in the right areas, which around marketing and things which maybe we hadn't done before so I think that that genuine commitment um I think from my perspective like what we've seen and what I've learned through the 100 journey is actually having me as a dedicated resource working on it and waking up every day thinking about it I think in those formative stages is really important um because it can't be it can't be another thing on somebody else's to-do list like it has to be a priority on somebody's to-do list and I think 
that's kind of the shift that we've had through our team actually is that I was able to give that for the first um, sort of 18 months, two years. And now we're in a stage where actually it's not just another thing on everybody's to-do list. It's very much integrated in it. And that's a cultural thing, actually. Um, so I think in terms of that leadership thing, I think it's, it's yeah, having that genuine commitment, um, being open to listening, sort of stripping back and being like, well, what's the opportunity here as well? Um, and I think that's probably what shifted around women's sports in recent times is that realisation that, that women's sport is an enormous um, growth opportunity um, sort of that, that people can take advantage of. So, um, yeah, I think there's probably lots of things there. I think personally, I've been very fortunate to work for um, a few uh, sort of, yeah, various leaders through through my career who have all been very, very supportive and passionate um, about the women and girls game in particular. So that's certainly helped. <laughs> I guess it must be a challenge, though, because when you um, when you agree and, and the rest of the, the players agree that kicking off the tournament makes sense and um, – and so you, you take on the oval with its cavernous spaces and say, right, we're gonna we're gonna open this thing up. Um, there must be an extent to which, with with head of women's tournament in your title, you can't help wearing that <laughs> pretty <laughs> pretty heavily. Like, talk us through how did that feel? How did you manage the nerve? Did you manage the nerves? You know, how are you able to compartmentalize it? Because you've got another twenty nine games or whatever it is to, to think about after the first one. Yeah, I mean, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't nervous. I was terrified. Um, I think, <laughs> gosh, for a good uh, four or five months out, um, sort of when tickets went on general sale, I'd be on that ticketing platform every day, clicking refresh just to see how many like we'd sold and, and where we were at. Um, Sounds a bit like publishing a book, to be oh, honest. Oh, gosh, I can imagine, yeah. So um, I was definitely, definitely nervous about it. But I think it's probably different stages, actually. I think I was also very, very, very excited very excited because I understood the, you know, the opportunity that it presented and what it stood for, actually. And there was a part of me that obviously we wanted to sell as many tickets and get as many people there as we could. But even actually just having that moment and that match, um, it transcended what we we're trying to do. It, it positions, you know, it, it set the tone for what the 100 is all about. And that is around sort of, yeah, more people, equal opportunities and all those things. So, yeah, it was nerve wracking. I think um, I bumped into one of the players, so um, Georgia Adams, who uh, played for the Oval Invincibles um, on the morning of the match. I was probably doing a few nervous laps around around the grounds, just sort of, yeah, burning off some nervous energy. Probably had more nerves than the players, actually. Um, but bumped into her and I was just like, oh, how are you feeling? And she's like, yeah, we're really excited. Because like she could see, you know, the ground, it, it looked and felt different. Like there was a main stage, like they could see the pyros going in all the led boards the led arches she was like yeah we're really excited this is gonna be wicked and i'm like yeah it needs to be a really good game georgia like we need it to be a good game like you know it can't be a it can't be a damp squiz like we need a close finish and high run scoring and boundaries and, and everything and she's like yeah you're like the fourth person from the ecb that's told me that today so thanks for all the pressure <laughs> um, and i was like oh gosh i'm sorry look you know just concentrate on what you've got to do but it was important you know like how that how that match actually played out and the actual quality of the cricket was important to the spectacle and look we were blessed like they were amazing those players were amazing and i think that's actually what blew me away was the quality of the cricket and I think that's also when we talk about step changes in the women's game, you know, you can talk about the global events and you can talk about inf like infrastructure and investment, but actually just the quality that now exists. Um, it's brilliant to watch. And I think 
having that opening match and having all those eyeballs. So I know we had a peak audience of around 2 million across the BBC and Sky Sports and, and sort of the people in the grounds. So like people for the first time, they're like, well, this is brilliant. Um, and so that was really exciting. And I think, you know, during that match, I know we crashed the ticketing website. So that meant that people were turning their tellies on. They were watching it and being like, do you know what? I want a piece of this. This is great. I want to get involved. Um, and, you know, we sold tens of thousands of tickets during that match. And I think it just shows that actually, yeah, the, the power of the women's game and women's sport now um, we're, it, it is unstoppable. We're, we're on the rise. And I guess I remember seeing you on the concourse, like maybe <laughs> after the first innings in that first game. And I was sort of, I wasn't sure where you'd be at, you know, I was, hi, how are you? I just remember you saying, the cricket is amazing. And sort of skipping down the concourse. Um, but, but, but ultimately, I guess it's a bit like, you know, when you, when you bring a book out and you get the nice first review or, or when, you know, you hear your record first played on the radio, if you're a music band or, or you have a prototype product come out, if you've made something, you know, once you know the product's good, everything else can just, just, you know, it will ultimately follow, right? But the product has to be good. I, I guess, were there any other learnings you think? So this audience is, is, is obviously going to be senior leaders from other sports. Is there anything um, looking back on those, those first few set up, months or first the setup years and then those months building up and the first few days you think right oh, I've got to remember that if anyone asks me from another sport that's something that was absolutely pivotal whether it's commercial or fans or media any little tips and tricks I think look, I think a big part of it is around investment and making sure that you're investing not just in the the sort of the quality of the event presentation. I think from a women's game perspective, that was a that was a big shift actually. So how we were presenting the game for the first time, I think it, it felt blockbuster. Um, and I think so that that's really important. I think just that wider infrastructure piece. So we talk about the pathways and stuff. So making sure that the quality of the cricket is is decent and sport. Um, but then I think there's probably other things like partnership working for me. So like we're very fortunate to have like brilliant partners, I think especially our broadcast partners. So that relationship between Sky and the BBC, you know, that gave us that whole reach and revenue um, opportunities. So the reach through um, through what the BBC could do. And I think actually going back to that opening game, you know, that was the biggest advert we could have had for what we could deliver. Um, and it's priceless, really. Like, you know, we had three hours live on primetime free-to-air television to promote what we were doing. Um, but we had to make sure that everything was in place before then in terms of what it looked like, what it felt like, um, all those things. So um, I think sort of, yeah, partnership working, uh, really crucial. And, and not just the broadcast, like we talked about tops and the tops cars, but also, um, you know, we had amazing things with Lego and, and other things. So again, just that kind of those wider things um, away from the cricket. And I think, um, I did a few interviews prior to the start of the competition and sort of asked about what the impact of the 100 could be for, for the women's game. And I, I kind of said, you know, like, I think the 100 is actually already over delivering on its promise. So for me, like the 100 was all about turbocharging the profile of women's cricket and really sort of, yeah, catapulting it to this wider audience. And I think even before a ball had been bowled, more column inches had been written about women's cricket more profile have been given to women's cricket across sort of, yeah, BBC, Sky, etc. Um, and kids were opening tops packets with um, female players within it, like it's something completely normal. So um, I think, yeah, the power of um, partnership working. And then I think the other thing, just in terms of, it's funny, isn't it? People talk about, oh my gosh, the double header model, like it actually worked, you know, like the hundred, we didn't invent double headers. Double headers have been around for many, many years now, but 
historically the double header was done for different reasons i think it was done as a cost saver and it was done as a way to um just try and you know oh, we need to get the women's match away and it was done in a really half-hearted effort so like i remember the very dark days of when we'd have england men's and women's um t20 double headers the women's match wasn't even listed on the ticket so it would have a start time of 6 30 didn't even mention that the women were playing a game beforehand at three so you know those the customers didn't know that it was happening so I think in terms of that communication piece and being very, very clear and consistent about what you're doing. Um, and I think we've been very clear and consistent from the start that the 100 is about men and women. It's one competition with two elements to it. The match day is, you know, it's one match day with two matches. Um, so just being really consistent with that. And I think that whole audience led approach. So this is this is the bit that I'm learning now, actually. So sort of the different roles I've had through my career, I've learned different skills and it's funny, like I talk about, oh gosh, like what I'm going to do next and who knows what that's going to be. Because I'm I'm always a bit of jack of all trades. Like I've, I've done a bit of media, I've done a bit of comms, I've done a bit of strategy, I've done some global events stuff. I'm now working on the 100. Um, and the bit that I'm learning about now loads actually is that audience um, audience focus and that audience first approach and that that marketing bit. Because I actually think for women's sport and women's cricket in particular, that's the bit that we've not really nailed before now. We've kind of just expected people to turn up and we've just expected, we're like, well, we're doing the right thing because, you know, we've got this match on, but we've not told anybody about it. We've not really invested in it. We've not really done that whole presentation at scale bit. And I think that's the bit, that's the switch that needs to be flipped now, actually, in women's sport is into that that marketing um, and that visibility piece because that has to happen because we've just, ultimately, we've got to grow our audiences. You know, like we talk about, um equal pay like equal pay is something that I'm hugely passionate about and I am you know pushing that's one of the areas that I am pushing very hard but it is a long game um in terms of sort of the women's salaries um within the hundred and we know that disparity exists but that that disparity doesn't exist because we've created unequal pay in the hundred it exists because we've had hundreds of years of unequal investment into men's and women's cricket and a big part of that actually is around marketing and that equality of opportunity so that's a very long answer to a very simple question about sort of learnings and, and things that we can pass on. But it is, I guess there's lots of stuff there um, and there's no one silver bullet. And that would be the thing that I say, actually, it's not there's not one thing that I can say now to be like, this is how to make your women's competition or event successful. It's a it's a multitude of things um, that need to work in unison um, to get to where you want to get to. And I guess you talk about audience analysis and that does say an audience understanding and that seems particularly important to me for for all of female sport at the time when so many of us are challenging our own preconceptions of what we have previously believed to be true. You know, so I'm sure if you took a look, I'm sure you are taking a look at people's perceptions around football cricket now versus six months ago. And frankly, most of the most of the work you've done six months ago is broadly irrelevant just because of the fantastic transition you've made in terms of how people think, feel and talk about um the sport now so so that's a you know that's that's a fluid thing where perceptions are changing far more in female sport i would argue actually than the male um as, as stands how do you then take um the success of the summer and then maybe not turn that i'm not going to quiz you for details on how the hundred's going to change next year but how how will your broader female engagement strategy change and evolve as a result of knowing you now have this this anchor showpiece 
Yeah, I, I mean, hopefully it'll get a lot easier, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, yeah, so my role, I've got the longest job title in the world. So I'm head of the 100 women's competition and female engagement, which might feel like a bit of a bolt on classic NGB. Well, let's just give one person two jobs to do. But it's not that at all. Like, I think the thinking behind that is like we know that the 100 gives us this vehicle and platform to accelerate um, the engagement um, of cricket by women and girls, um, whether that be through attending matches or watching on the TV um, or inspiring girls in particular to pick up a bat and ball and play the game. But there's other elements to it, actually, that I'm, I'm now really excited about is around like people. How do we use the 100 to accelerate um, the development of people in the sport? So whether that be female coaches. So we know that we have um, a big gap there in the number of female coaches, both at the grassroots level um, and also um, in the elite space. So um, how do we accelerate that? Um, officials, like we've made massive strides this year um, in terms of the number of female officials that we've had standing in the 100 matches, but we need more um, and we need that pathway. So how can we, again, use the 100 to try and accelerate that? Um, and then I think for me, actually, the biggest thing around it actually is that the 100 gives us this chance to think about cricket differently. It's almost a philosophy about the game. And I know that sounds really pretentious, but how we think about cricket has to shift. And it goes a bit back to that perception piece. So I think historically, you know, people will close their eyes and they'll think of cricket as being white, male, pale, stale. That's a classic sort of reeling off the tongue there. Um, but what we've been able to do with the 100 is actually almost try and change that. And that perception piece is really important. And hopefully now, like, there is a, a change in perception about yeah what the game is and where women fit within it um, and that we are just becoming more accessible and more inclusive and that's not just at the top end but that's down at local cricket clubs on a on a weekend that women feel welcome in those spaces so um, I'm doing a lot of work with our facilities team for example around welcoming environments um, at the grassroots level and things like that and, and sort of learnings and, and just ways of talking and thinking about it and I think language that's something we've not really touched on much today but the language of cricket to become more inclusive. So, you know, the changing of the term batsman to batter sounds simple and, and sort of obvious, but really significant, actually, um, even though some people don't agree with it, which, quite frankly, you know, they're not people that I necessarily want <laughs> to talk to very much because, it, it you know, it's a no-brainer no for me. So I think how we think and feel about cricket um, is really important. And I think the 100 just gives us an opportunity just to, yeah, to widen that appeal um, a little bit better. So, yeah, I think that female engagement element to my job, that's the bit that I'm going to get really stuck into, actually, um, sort of in the next few months and, and how we can kind of, yeah, try and accelerate some some parts within that. That makes that makes total sense. I've, I got looked at quite strangely um, at my cricket club when we had this conversation around, yeah, how do we make this place feel as welcoming to females whether it's to come and have a drink at the bar or for for somebody to come and play in a mixed team whatever it is i said you know my um my aspiration though it feels just like monsters of rock <laughs> <laughs> so when, when i was when i was 13 i used to i was quite like my heavy metal and and went down to uh donnington to monsters of rock two or three times and actually strangely it might seem the heavy metal crowds are the most friendly, welcome, opening, broad-minded, careful of their language in terms of the language and nuance they use of any tribe that I've ever found. Um, so there you go. There you go. I, I was going to say, like, you, 
you needed to maybe explain to me what Monsters of Rock was. There might be a bit of, uh, I don't know. I'm just showing my a generation, age. A generation gap there or something. But, I'm glad you only said one <laughs> generation. <laughs> but but what you then said in terms of, yeah, that that how people feel when they go into those spaces is really important. And it's not just women, you know, it's 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 everybody. We want cricket to be more accessible to more people. Um, and I think we've got a massive opportunity over the, the sort of the coming months and years to do that. A couple of questions in closing. Then, first off, I'm not going to I'm not going to let you feel too young as a result <laughs> of this podcast. So, so let's talk about you as a, as a wife and mum. Like, how do you most extraordinary eighteen months everyone in in commercial and professional sport has been through? But um, launching, I guess, a new, a new cricketing baby this year. Yeah, how do you how, how do you balance all of that? And and how have you have you managed to compartmentalize anything that any of us going into big event cycles from learn from how you've managed it? Yeah, look, I think um, I'm I'm very, very fortunate that I have a, a very supportive wife um, who's very understanding um, about what I do. Um, I think actually the, the working from home has helped. Um, I think actually sort of being around um, and being there for sort of, you know, early mornings and, and bath time and things, that's definitely helps. And I think that's helped me as well, actually, in terms of my mental health and being able to, um to have that time with my family um that's that's been yeah I've been very fortunate in that respect um yeah I think in terms of pressure points I mean there there are things that I would do differently um you know I think actually the, the thing that really struck me was after the event so what I've really struggled with um after the end that final um at Lords like I really struggled just to get back into normal life um I think because I was on the road for pretty much the whole competition so I was living this weird existence of getting on buses and going to cricket matches and drinking lots of black coffee to get through the whole thing and eating crisps basically um but yeah coming back into back into sort of family life after that I did really struggle with and I think if I was going to have that time again like I just needed to give myself like space and time just to just to put it away whereas I sort of got straight back into that right okay cool 2021's done we've got to make it even better in 2022. So what are we doing? How are we doing that? What's the schedule going to look like? Like what's the player selection process going to be? Um, so I think if I had that time again, I I'd try and take more time out um, just to really sort of, yeah, diffuse and, and sort of um, get back into family life. But um, yeah, I've been very, very lucky with Eliza, my wife. Like she's brilliant. Like she looks after me. She's, um, she's what I call our chief household officer. She's our CHO. Um, <laughs> so she's very much, um, yeah, in charge of everything within the house, which um, I'm, I'm lucky that I've got that support. Very cool. I mean, it rings a few bells actually with we're taking <laughs> a, a step back from two circles and, and sort of was writing a book, I think within about a week of that happening. And, it, and in hindsight, and that was probably quite cathartic, but at the same time, um, if I'd been able to, we should probably have gone and skied up a mountain or something for a couple of weeks. Just, <laughs> skied just, up a mountain. <laughs> yeah, that would, that would have been even harder work. Um, just, to, <laughs> just to just to try and clear my head and and to yeah. sort of make some sense of everything that, that had gone through. A um, couple of final questions then. So, um, if we found ourselves working together um, on a brand new sport, and uh, and I, I'm stood next to you. I'm 46, slightly balding, white male, never been involved in scaling a, um, a female sport, but know that that's important for us in the next bit of our team's journey. You know, what would your two or three th- bits of advice be to me? So I think definitely commit to it. 
Um, I think um, having dedicated resource actually on it. So I don't think it's something that you can do on the side. So making sure that you've got um, somebody that is specifically looking at it and driving it um, and doing all the sort of the pushing and poking in the right places. Um, and then I think, you know, it is, it's just a case of making sure that you do properly invest and that you do you do it properly. So I think committing to it as a concept and a proposition, but then actually following through um, and doing it with a with the same attention and detail that you would do um, if you were yeah, launching something um, in the, in the men's space as well. So um, I think it's just yeah about realizing that opportunity um, and committing to it. And that specific female resource. So I'm going to ask you, Tiff, like what what are the specific skills you think are particularly um, key that you have in that role? I guess it's that's a great question. Um, Look, I think it has to be, this is just from, from my experience and perhaps my personal approach to it, but I do think you have to have someone that's very passionate about what they do. Um, I think, you know, I, I'd be lying if I said that I didn't have to have quite thick skin um, to a lot of things like um, resilience, um, definitely had to keep going. I think especially in those formative stages, like sort of, yeah, had to break down a lot of um, barriers, I guess, to get to where we are now. And the fact that I am now pushing on open doors, that's taken quite a lot of work um yeah good stakeholder management uh, <laughs> i think that's key in any walk of life actually just understanding people and understanding how to manage people and, and sort of what buttons to press and when um and then yeah look I, I think at the moment you do still just have to be very driven um to what you're doing so i think there's probably lots of things there and, and just having a, a real understanding of it like i don't think it's the sort of thing that you can do half-heartedly so i think that that passion point actually for me is probably that will get you through a lot of situations um and being quite persuasive uh when you need to be <laughs> and the ability to skip down a concourse course well yes and that and smile yeah <laughs> yeah no, totally. well listen thank, thanks ever so much for for taking time um we too tend to ask one final question which is whether you can sum up your your sort of key message from the pod in in 10 words or less and i think you've got that right left brain brain that means you're going to absolutely nail this without putting any pressure on oh, so. no. You say this. Um, oh, it's easy for me to say, I know. We've talked about lots of things, and I'm not normally one to be uh, especially succinct, but um, look, I think, okay, right, I'm going to steal something, actually, and you're going to recognise this because this is, I think, a two circles mantra. But for me, where what we just talked about there in terms of that passion, but also being backed up by, you know, um, analysis and, and data and things. So that whole sell on emotion um, and rationalize on data. Um, I think that's really key right now um, for, for women's sport, because I think we've still got that very core um, point around purpose and why it is just the right thing to do. Um, so that whole, you know, it is a, it's a passionate thing, but then we have to be able to rationalize what we're doing on data and insights and audience and that audience first approach. And I think that's probably what I've learned now. So I think in my early career, it was all about, um, yeah, passion and drive. And then I think now it's like, right, okay, now I need to start backing some of this up with some insight and some audience and some rationalization. So um, sell on emotion, rationalize on data. Fantastic. I wasn't fishing for a two circles line. Now, but what a lovely way to finish. Beth, thanks ever so much for taking time. It's been really enjoyable. Thank you for having me. Take care. The Playbook podcast is published by SportsPro and is part of a wider series delivering agenda-free, pragmatic advice on how to navigate your organisation through change. 
to explore the library and find out about the Playbook Labs Residential Executive Training Program, head to sportspromedia.com slash playbook.